Good morning, church. Uh, Before we uh, go to God in his word, uh, let's go to him once more in prayer. If you could, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your living and active word, and that by it uh, we can grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you. As we consider your judgment this morning, as you have revealed it in your word, We do pray that you would grow us in the fear of you. As we consider your justice and your righteousness, Lord God, make us a people who do justice and righteousness. Uh, For the good of your church and the glory of your name, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. December 31st, 2023, the last day of the calendar year. OBC family, it is a joy and it is a privilege to be preaching to you on the last Lord's Day of the year. Like most years, uh, 2023 was full of joys and challenges, uh, full of prosperity and suffering, events that we planned for uh, and events that we didn't plan for. Uh, But throughout it all, our God has remained the same. Uh, Faithful he's been in 2023 and faithful he will be in 2024. Church, I wouldn't expect you all to remember this necessarily, but I actually had the privilege of preaching to us on January 1st of this year. And I preached uh, from Psalm 99, uh, one of several kingship psalms throughout this altar. Uh, We began 2023 considering the Lord's reign over all of creation. We consider how his reign is a reign of complete justice and righteousness, and that these attributes of the Lord, they all stem from his holiness. Psalm 99.5 was one of the key verses in that text. It says, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Holy is he, the holy God who reigns in justice and righteousness demands our worship. The one who sits enthroned upon the cherubim deserves all of our praise. But what happens? What happens when creation does not give credit to the creator? Uh, What is God to do when the finite refuses to exalt the infinite? Uh, We find an answer to that very question in our passage for this morning. Isaiah chapter 5. If you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. You can find it on page 569 in the Pew Bibles, 569 in the Pew Bibles. As is always the case, if you do not have a physical copy of God's Word to read for yourself, please do take that one as a gift from us to you. Uh, What better way to start off 2024 than to be regularly reading a copy of God's Word for yourself? I will not be reading it in its entirety, as Matt has already done that for us, but I will give us some context before we jump in. Uh, Chapter 5 of Isaiah concludes the first section of the book. Uh, 1 through 5, chapters 1 through 5, in many ways, are an extended introduction, uh, where the prophet moves back and forth between this hope-guilt-hope framework. Uh, These five chapters, they essentially are an extended diagnosis of Judah's spiritual decline. And that decline is so steep, it's been so steep, such that in chapter 5, where we are today, Isaiah is done. Isaiah is done extending hope. This chapter is all about consequences for rebellion. 
the consequences for not giving God the glory that is due his name. Uh, One final reminder, and this is especially helpful for those who maybe this is your first sermon with us in Isaiah, Uh, but this is the genre of this text. This is prophetic prophecy. Uh, It's poetic in nature, uh, meaning the images and the symbols are pointing to deeper spiritual meaning. But as we've also seen as we've been walking through the book of Isaiah, there are times where this prophecy, uh, the author, he weaves in and out of symbolism and what's really happened historically. So with that in mind, our final main idea for 2023, and I trust that this is a truth that will bring us comfort as we navigate this fallen and unjust world. Here it is, main idea. God will punish with complete justice those who choose to do injustice. God will punish with complete justice those who choose to do injustice. And we'll see God's justice on display through three scenes of injustice. Three scenes of injustice. Scene number one, verses one to seven, a song of injustice, a song of injustice. Scene two, verses eight to 24, warnings of injustice, warnings of injustice. And then scene three, a response to injustice, verses 25 to 30, a response to injustice. So let's begin with scene one, a song of injustice. Isaiah begins this final section of this first portion of the book of Isaiah differently than he has the previous four chapters. He begins with a song, uh, a song about a vineyard. It doesn't take much Bible reading to know that the scriptures are chocked full of agricultural imagery, uh, even specifically images of, of vineyards. Agriculture was at the center of society, the well-being of crops often dictated the well-being of cities. And so Isaiah, knowing his audience would be familiar with the importance of a vineyard, begins to sing a song about a vineyard, but not just any song, a love song. Verse one, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Now before we go any further, I think Uh, we would be helped to know who each of these characters are uh, in this love song. Again, this is poetic imagery. These characters, our images, are meant to point to something real. And Isaiah helpfully gives us an answer key. So if you scroll on down to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. This vineyard, planted on a very fertile hill, represents... Israel, Judah, God's chosen people, the people that he had set his affections upon and made a covenant with. And the the vine dresser, or or my beloved, is the Lord. You can see it right there in the beginning of verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. So with that in mind, equipped with who's who, let's consider how this vine dresser, how Yahweh has tended to the vineyard, Israel. The first thing we learned about this vineyard is that it was placed in a very fertile hill, Uh, meaning uh, the vineyard, it had the best chance for growth. This was optimal ground. Right away, we see intentionality. Uh, We see planning. Uh, Fertile ground was sought out, and then the vineyard was planted. I'm not a gardener, but I do know uh, that if a seed is going to have a shot at one day bearing good fruit, it must be planted in good soil fertile soil. 
We learn more about the care that this vine dresser took as he planted this vineyard in verse 2. He, he dug it. In other words, he broke up the soil. Tedious work. He cleared it of stones. What do stones do? Stones inhibit the growth of roots. So he took time, again, tedious work, to clear out these stones. He planted it with choice vines. These are good quality vines, right? Not cheap vines. He wasn't sparing expense. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. In other words, he didn't have to leave, right? He could protect the vineyard from people, from maybe animals at all times because he had built a watchtower right there. He hewed out a wine vat in it. In other words, he dug out a wine press right there. He could process the grapes right there on the spot. He looked for it to yield grapes. He paid attention to it. He had expectations of it. The same way the vine dresser so carefully tended to the vineyard is the same way that God has so carefully and lovingly tended to Israel. At this point in Israel's history, God had made every provision for them to be a blessing to the world. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Church family, talk about being set up for success. It doesn't get any better than that. God is promising Abram, so this is before he became Abraham, that he and his lineage would not only be a blessing, but they would also be a blessing. Fertile ground. From the very beginning, God had nothing but good for his people. He, was, he has blessed Israel and expected Israel to be a blessing to others, much like the vine dresser expected the vineyard to yield good grapes. Uh, but he didn't. Instead, we see it there. It, they yielded wild, worthless, sour grapes, grapes that would not produce good wine. And so... Isaiah breaks the third wall, and he turns to the audience and tells them to weigh in. Judah, you make a call. Israel, what's your assessment of the situation? In verse 4, we get a rhetorical question. What more was there to do for my vineyard? I expected it to yield good grapes. Why did it yield bad grapes? Friends, here we learn something of God's character as he relates to his people. God is not indifferent. God is not indifferent. He expects something of his people, namely their complete love and devotion and worship. He expects his people to bear fruit. He does not sit idly by like a bad parent while their child sticks their finger in an electrical socket. His love compels him to act, and this is exactly what he does in verses 5 and 6. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Six times. Six times we see the phrase, I will, in two verses. God takes full responsibility for what will take place 
with worthless and disobedient Israel. Uh, Verses 5 and 6 are essentially the opposite of verse 2. If the watchtower is a symbol of protection, in verse 5, we see the removal of that protection with the removal of the wall and the hedge. At one point, the vine dresser was carefully tilling and tending to the ground and removing stones. In verse 6, we see that he no longer maintains the vineyard and such that these invasive weeds begin to grow up and overrun it. The vine dresser, he is so fed up with the vineyard that he goes as far as to command the clouds to no longer rain upon it, leaving it to die. God is not merely allowing suffering to come to Israel. He is ordaining it. God sovereignly ordaining suffering and hardship for his people. Why would a loving God do this? Uh, The remainder of chapter 3 will answer this question in full. But suffice it to say, the Lord expected his people to be a blessing. And instead, they resembled more of a curse. Uh, We get a summary of their wickedness at the end of verse 7. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. A righteous God expected his people to do righteousness. A just God expected his people to be just. Remember, the underlying issue with Judah was that they were no longer worshiping God, idolatry. In their pride, they had turned to worshiping idols. In addition, they were overlooking the most vulnerable among them, the widows, the orphans. But God had been more than clear with his people about what he expected of them. Moses writes to their forefathers in Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is such a beautiful text. I would like for you all to go ahead and turn there. Go to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 12. It's page 155 in the Pew Bibles. Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I, command, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. That's amazing. This is what Yahweh expected his people to be. A people set apart to fear him, to walk in his ways. A people who were to execute justice for the fatherless and the widows. 
And they were to do all of this, remembering that he was the one who brought them out of Egypt. Israel had seen it with their own eyes, the great and terrifying things that God had done on their behalf. Yet sadly, Israel, the nation that was to be set apart, holy, unlike any other nation, looked no different than their surroundings. But God will not let the requirements that he sets forth, the expectations that he has for his people to go unmet with no punishment. Uh, Unlike earthly parents, when God commands something of his people and they disobey, he doesn't forget their disobedience. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. From his holiness, from his justice, he will punish sin. He must punish sin. And we get a sense of what that punishment, that justice will look like in our second scene. Scene number two, warnings of injustice, verses 8 to 24. I have a question for you all. How do you tend to respond to warnings in life? How do you tend to respond to warnings in life? Generally, and I'm painting with broad strokes here, generally I think we all have a tendency to respond one of two ways. Uh, You're either the person who heeds the warning immediately, that cheese, it's past the expiration date, throw it away. Or sign says, bears in the woods, all right, we're not going hiking. Or you're the person who tends to push boundaries, maybe even ignore warnings. At expiration date, that's more of a suggestion anyway, right? Just cut around the mold, we'll eat the rest of the cheese. Or then the odds are slim that we'll actually come across a bear. Let's go hiking. In verses 18 and 24, uh, we see six woes, a term used to describe grief, concern, a term that conveys anguish and trouble to the hearer or to the reader. It's an expression of judgment. And so with six uses of this word over the span of 15 verses, we begin to see very clearly what Isaiah is feeling in the moment. Uh, The prophet is both subjectively and objectively pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem. Judgment for Israel. Warnings for us. Warnings of what God will do to those who commit injustice. Now, before we dive into each of these, I want to point out another repeated term throughout this section, the word therefore. Uh, We see it four times in our passage, and they follow right behind these woes. Effectively, what Isaiah is doing for us is he's describing the sin of Judah, beginning with the woe, followed by how exactly God will judge that sin. Sin, followed by consequences. Sin, although it tries to hide it, always has consequences. We can group the first two woes as they both are self-centered in nature together. So verse 8, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. And then drop down to verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as fine wine inflames them. Greed and self-indulgence. Greed and self-indulgence. Indulgence, beginning with greed in verse 8, we're given an image of a person with no regard for neighbor, literal neighbor. We could say it's a, it's a picture of like a, a real estate mogul of sorts, acquiring so much land to the point where there's no more land for anyone else. They're the only ones left. This individual is, is greedy 
for gain. They have no regard for the well-being of others. And then in verse 11, we see self-indulgence. The image we were given is of an alcoholic, someone who is so consumed by drunkenness that rather than sleeping, they get up early in the morning to consume alcohol, day or night, morning or evening. They are controlled by the desire for strong drink. And as they indulge in this alcohol, as their faculties are impaired, they have no desire, no regard for the deeds of the Lord or the works of his hands. And here, right here, we have the reason why God will judge the greedy, why God will judge the self-indulgent Israel, because in their self-centeredness, they forget about God. They do not see, much less regard or worship this good and loving God. As we saw in Deuteronomy 10, God has always expected his people to love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love neighbor as self. The sin of greed and self-indulgence by their very nature are expressions of loving something else the way that we are called to love God and neighbor. Expressions of loving the creation more than the creator. Church family, as those who are prone to wander, we have to ask ourselves the question, where are we tempted to love creation more than creator? In what areas are we lacking neighbor love? If you're unsure, you've probably heard this before, but you can kind of start with a basic test, the three T's. Right? Your time, your talents, your treasure. Where do you spend most of your time? Your abilities, your money. These things will often reveal something about our affections, something about our worship, our heart. What might we be giving so much time and attention to that causes us to lack regard for the deeds of the Lord or, or miss seeing the works of his hands. This could be a great prayer to pray as we enter into 2024. Lord, by your grace, cause us to see and acknowledge the work of your hands more and more in this new year. But as I mentioned earlier, each woe is followed with a therefore. Uh, that leads to God's holy judgment. In verse 9, we see the Lord of hosts pronounce the first judgment. This real estate mogul who's greedy for gain, he, he, he bought up all this land so that no one could have any, any land themselves, and he's left with just that, just the land. All this land with no one to share it with, empty mansions. Not only that, the hopes that he had to turn an agricultural profit of sorts, those are dashed. What would be, say, a winery for us today, 10 acres of, of vineyards, only produce one bath, or to use our metric system, six gallons of wine. 10 acres, six gallons. A homer or 10 bushels of seed only produce one ephah, uh, one bushel of, of grain. I'm not a farmer, nor am I an, an economist, but it doesn't take much to see that this is a loss. Right? The imagery is painting a picture of God's judgment, God taking away. And we see even more of this detailed in verses 13 through 17. The drunkenness and the feasting of verse 11 is met with hunger and thirst in verse 13. The land acquisitions of the greedy, which are now desolate, which will one day be a place where the lambs graze and the, the nomad or alien will feast in those ruins. Verse 17, it is as if the Lord's saying, if drink is your God, then I will take away that God entirely. Thirst. If love of land and possessions is your boast 
and your pride, well, then I will take those things and give them to the poor. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Woe, uh, calamity, judgment to those who attempt to do so. A few more observations about God's judgment in verse 13. Although the use of the word exile is, is symbolism here, it is sobering to think that historically speaking, that is exactly what happened to Judah. Seventy years in exile under Assyrian captivity. And then in verse 14, Isaiah highlights the great equalizer, Sheol, or death. Uh, it takes on this image of a, a mouth opened wide and, and swallowing up Jerusalem. The nobility, the dignitaries, the crowds, the masses, those who exalt and boast in Judah will finally be swallowed up by death. Spiritually speaking, uh, the root of Israel's sin is pride. Whether it be greed or self-indulgence, in their pride, Israel does not regard the deeds of the Lord. Uh, the Lord of hosts and his loving commands is not part of their calculus. Uh, therefore, verse 15, man is humbled and brought low. If, if justice, in the broadest sense, is treating others fairly, then what we have here is spiritual injustice. Uh, God in his glory deserves the highest regard. Uh, all of our praise our complete worship and devotion. He is the being who is most worthy of our affections. But why is that? Well, because he alone is completely holy. And from his holiness comes his love, uh, comes his grace and mercy, not to mention the fact that he is our creator. For the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be forgotten, uh, disregarded, is cosmic treason. The holy judgment coming for those who attempted to exalt in the strength of Israel in verse 14 will be the very object of exaltation in verse 16. The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. It's in his execution of judgment that the holy God shows, he proves, he demonstrates that he indeed is holy and righteous. The judgment that we see taking place here, and, and really in the remainder of our passage, is evidence that God is holy. He is set apart. He is without sin, nor can he ever dwell with sin. For God to be just, uh, for God to be holy, and we want him to be, he needs to be, he must punish sin. And that is exactly what Isaiah continues to unpack for us in these remaining four woes. Israel's spiritual condition is dire. There is something fundamentally wrong. Uh, the root is rotten. These woes in verses 18 to 24, 23, they really do echo Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, Judah is not dabbling in sin. 
they have given themselves over to sin such that they no longer have categories for the truth. Uh, Here we see the insanity of sin. Verse 18, the images of somebody being harnessed to sin and, and dragging it along wherever they go. Or in other words, a slave to sin, to borrow the Apostle Paul's words. They are so deceived and blinded that they become brash in their sin. And in verse 19, they go as far as to to dare the Holy One of Israel, to to do something against them that they can actually see with their eyes, intentionally sinning, taunting God. In verse 20, we see the perverse nature of sin. In their rebellion, Israel calls what is evil good and what is good evil. And in so doing, verse 21, they become judges, arbiters of their own lives. In verse 22, Isaiah returns to the sin of indulgence as if to say, hey, look again. Look again at those who indulge themselves and have no regard. They don't care for the things that God cares about. If God cares about justice and equity and fairness, verse 23, these Self-indulgent drunkards are those who would be happy to accept a bribe, to let the guilty go free and deny the innocent their freedom. Church family, I find it eerie how well these four woes depict our society today. If verse 18 can be summarized as intentional sin, knowing what is wrong in God's sight and doing it anyway, We don't have to go very far to see a plethora of examples of that in our city today. God has been clear about things like sexual sin, drunkenness, violence. Yet we see those very things being glorified on on billboards, storefronts, in music, in the news. Or or the the, uh, perverse nature of sin. Take that as an example. Today, uh, some call what some call the sexual revolution. In Genesis, God created the world and everything in it, including man and woman, and he literally called them good. And today, uh, we live in a world where people rebel against God's good creation trying, by trying to specifically reverse his good creation. Women calling themselves men and men calling themselves women. What God called good, our sinful world calls evil. Warning. Pity, woe to those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. This fallen world is wise in its own eyes. This world denies and or doesn't know that there is a God who will judge the living and the dead. Consider with me first the first therefore that follows these four woes. Verse 24, uh, we're given an image of a tongue of fire devouring stubble. Because of Judah's rebellious attempt to usurp the throne of the Lord, because of their disregard for God and his good and loving commands, the Lord's judgment of Israel will be akin to dry grass being set on fire, all-consuming. Judah will be like a plant with rotten roots. The blossoms are, are blown away in the wind because the plant is dead. As if to anticipate Israel's responding with the rebellious, well, why would you do this, God? Isaiah does what he's been doing throughout all these five chapters of this prophecy, and he communicates the reason, the reason for this judgment, the heart of the offense against God. Why would God respond to Israel's sin with such all-consuming force? 
Verse 24, because fundamentally they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Uh, The law, uh, the word, throughout Scripture, uh, this is how God has chosen to reveal himself. Uh, Just a few days ago, we rejoiced, we celebrated in the word becoming flesh, Jesus Christ dwelling among us. The Bible is God's words in his own words. Therefore, to reject the law of the Lord, to despise the Holy One of Israel, is to reject and despise God himself. God will judge those who reject him, those who persist in sin and have no regard for who he is and what he has done. He will discipline the self-indulgent. He will punish the perverse, and he will be exalted in justice as he repays for injustice. Now, for anyone here this morning who has not trusted in the God of the Bible through faith in Jesus Christ, I do wonder, do you realize your state before this living God? According to Isaiah, because of your sin, you have offended God in these ways and many, many more making you an enemy of God. The judgment and wrath that I've been talking about this morning is coming for you in eternity. But I want to put an emphasis on eternity. Friend, eternity has not arrived for you just yet, which means you have time to get right with God in the only way that he calls for, by repenting of your sins and putting your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation alone. The sin and rebellion that plagued Isaiah's day is the same sin and rebellion that plagues our world today. The Bible makes it very clear that what we have earned for our sin is God's wrath. And the wrath of God, it must be satisfied. And so, out of God's mercy and grace, he sent someone to satisfy that wrath, his only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth and lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. His earthly life, it it came to an end when he was wrongly accused and hung on a Roman cross to die. But after he died, his body was buried in a tomb. And this right here was the greatest injustice to ever take place on this earth. The sinless one killed by the sinful ones. But this was all a part of the plan. Because three days later, Jesus Christ rose physically from the grave, proving that his sacrifice was indeed accepted by God the Father. And he, as he physically arose, he's now ascended into heaven physically as well, where he is currently ruling and reigning. And he will one day return to execute the just judgment of Isaiah 5 in an eternal and final sense. But until that day, he extends forgiveness. He extends mercy for us as sinners right now. A forgiveness that you need and you can have if you would repent of your sins and trust in Christ today. Jesus took this all-consuming punishment in Isaiah 5 so that we don't have to. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. If you've not trusted in Christ and turned to him for forgiveness of sins, what better way to start the new year than by doing so. If you'd like to talk more about that, meet with the pastor at one of the doors after the service or maybe with the person who brought you to church this morning. 
What better way than to start a new year than to repent of your sins and trust in Christ for the first time? 17 years ago, yesterday, this good news of the gospel changed my life. I was an 18-year-old freshman in college uh, who was calling evil good and good evil. I was exchanging darkness for light and light for darkness. I was wise in my own eyes until God, by the work of his spirit, opened up my eyes to my sin of of self-centeredness. He showed me my need for a savior and by his grace brought me to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Has life been easy since then? By no means. As a matter of fact, I would argue it's gotten harder. But through suffering and trials of many kinds, God has shown himself abundantly faithful and more worthy of all of my trust and devotion. The same God who saved me as an 18-year-old is the same God who has sustained me thus far. And I trust he will sustain me until I see him face to face. Why do I share my story? Well, because, friends, I want to encourage you that if God can save a wretch like me, he can save anybody. This is the good news of the gospel. God saves sinners. God saves those who repent and believe in him. But for those who refuse to turn from sin and trust in Jesus, for those who choose to persist in the injustice of not regarding God for who he is, the Holy One of Israel, he will, he must respond to this injustice with his just judgment, which is what we see taking place in verses 25 to 30. Scene number three a response to injustice. In verse 25, we find our final therefore, our final consequence of Israel's wicked rebellion. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. Friends, this is a picture of calamity. An event has taken place that has brought terrible loss, lasting distress, severe affliction, uh, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, disaster. God's judgment against Judah would be a calamity. Uh, Dead bodies and garbage left out in the middle of the streets as as evidence that something tragic has taken place. Uh, Surely, surely whatever has taken place, it's finally come and gone. Surely whatever has taken place is over now, right? Well, Isaiah continues, for all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still stretched out to strike. Or in other words, God's hand is still raised to strike again. What more would God do to judge Israel? Well, the remaining verses of our passage are another of several examples throughout the book of Isaiah where the imagery speaks very clearly about what actually took place historically. Uh, We've mentioned it several times, but eventually the nation of Assyria would invade from the north and destroy Jerusalem, uh, taking its captives into exile. But this invasion, it wasn't by chance. Verse 26, he, God, will raise a signal, a flag, a banner for nations far away. He, God, 
will whistle for them from the ends of the earth. Again, we see it here. God ordained the destruction of Judah. Uh, Remember the repetition of I will in verses 5 and 6. This is what the Lord meant when he said he would remove this hedge of protection. Uh, This is the figure of the image uh, of the vineyard being trampled down. Uh, This is the fulfillment of the image of God commanding the clouds to no longer rain on the vineyard. Israel destroyed by the Assyrian army. Isaiah gives us further description of this invasion. It's aggressive. It's fast. There's no hesitation. Assyria is not slow to carry out God's judgment. The might of their military army is on full display as he recruits them south to Judah. Isaiah moves from military imagery to this image of a lion in verses 29 to 30. Their invasion is like a lion seizing its prey. Once it sunks its jaws into the neck of the prey and its claws into the body, it's as good as dead. There is no rescuing it. This image is meant to convey to us the sad reality that there will be no hope for Judah when this invasion begins. And in the passage, it concludes with another image of land. The land that God had promised and given to Israel would now be covered with darkness and distress. Assyria was a tool in the hand of God in the execution of his just judgment. OBC family, in chapters 1 through 4, there were some clear markers of hope. Hope that, quite frankly, made it a lot easier to preach these passages. But here, in Isaiah 5, the prophet gives us no breaths of hope as we drown in God's just judgment. The the message, it comes across loud and clear that God will punish with complete justice those who choose to do injustice. But I would like to end our time by giving us five ways that this sobering reality of God's just judgment should impact us on this side of the cross. Five ways. Here's way number one. God's just judgment should cause us to strive for obedience. Should cause us to strive for obedience. Not because our obedience gives us right standing with God, no but because our obedience is evidence that we are in right standing with God. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those who love God strive to obey God. Reason number two, uh, grow, it should grow us, God's just judgment should grow us in loving our neighbor. It should grow us in loving our neighbor. God cares about how you treat others. Paul goes as far as to say in Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God will judge those who are unjust to their neighbor. So how are you treating your spouse? How are you treating your kids? How are you treating your coworker? How are you treating your fellow church member? How you love these people says something about your love or lack of love for God. The third way God's just judgment should impact us is by growing our urgency in evangelism. By growing our urgency in evangelism. Hebrews 9.27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. When this life is over, and for some of us, that will be sooner than others, we will be judged 
There is no waiting period. Every thought, every action or inaction will be under the microscope of God. For those who have not repented and believed, the Bible is very clear. They will spend eternity in hell. So allow this biblical truth that God will punish in hell those who do not repent to grow us in our urgency to tell and share the good news of the gospel. Church, how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? We must go and tell. The fourth way that God's just judgment should impact us is by growing our big God theology. By growing our big God theology. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Uh, remember uh, the ownership that God took of this judgment in verses 5 and 6. God has the power to enact the justice that we've been talking about this morning. Yes, he is our loving father, but he is not to be trifled with. He is to be respected, revered, uh, trusted, and worshipped. Lastly, the truth of God's just judgment should cause our hearts to explode with thankfulness for Jesus. Should cause our hearts to explode with thankfulness for Jesus. Uh, thankful, thankfulness that this just God would pour out his holy justice on his only son to make us his treasure. Uh, thankfulness that the wounds which marred the chosen one which would bring us to glory. Uh, thankfulness that his dying breath would bring us eternal life. Thankfulness that rather that than us having to pay a debt that we could not repay, his wounds have paid our ransom. OBC family, praise God for his holy justice. And praise God that it was poured out on Christ. Let's pray. Lord of hosts, what is man that you are mindful of us? Uh, Lord God, as we begin a new year, may we do so with your holiness, righteousness, and justice at the forefront of our minds. Grow us in fear and reverence of you this year. Uh, make us a people by your spirit who love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength more in 2024 than we did in 2023. All honor glory, dominion, and authority be to Christ, our King. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.